91.2 in the heart of Seattle, Washington. This is Physical Culture Radio. I'm your dopest host with the most, Greg Jones, at Coach Greg Jones Instagram and Facebook. Along with my super dope host, Chris Edmonds. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing great, man. How are yourself? Good, man. I um, I did something different with my training yesterday, and I got to tell you about it. Um, so, as you know, uh, as my coach, I've been talking to you a lot about my shoulder issues, having some joint problems, having some what I think is like systemic inflammation. Um, so this week I backed off from the machines, backed off from the typical how I work out in the manner that I work out. Um, and I did something interesting yesterday at the gym. So I did all my shoulder exercises, all the uh, beginning um, stuff, some of the stuff that uh, you've sent me the scapula movement stuff, the straightest anterior stuff, things that we've been working on. And then I uh, proceeded to do landmine presses. Um, I proceeded to do biceps and triceps in a big circuit. So I was doing easy easy curl bar curls. I was doing tricep pushdowns with some elite FTS bands. Um, and then I did a shitload of landmine presses just because my shoulders have been feeling like crap. And... My shoulders feel a ton better today. I'm wondering, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this for a couple weeks where I just lay off the machines for a while and get back to a bunch of functional shit. Okay. And I'm gonna train legs once a week and fucking hammer them every Sunday. I'm gonna train arms a couple days a week. I'm gonna lay off the machines, see if I can't do partials on, you know, barbells and with dumbbells. Um, and, and, and not do pec deck, not do um, all the hammer strength stuff, not do the, you know, machine lateral raises and whatnot. And my shoulders feel great from doing landmine presses yesterday. And that's usually, presses usually fuck up my shoulders. And because it was a free weight movement, it feels great. So, I, you know, if you do the same thing over and over again and expect different results, that's you know, the definition of just being an idiot. And I think me just doing the same thing over and over again with the bodybuilding and doing a bunch of different machines and just trying to get a muscle pump, I think it was just fucking up my joints. So I think I need to base my training around some functional shit. And then, you know, one of our arguments today, we're, we're talking about bro science in, the, in today's episode. And we're talking about, you know, you're talking about volume. Um, I'm talking about progressive overload. And uh, I think one of the things that I need to do is I, I'm going to kind of practice what I preach in, in, in my standpoint of progressive overload and just take some real basic fucking movements and, and safely go heavier in them. And when you're talking about progressive overload, um, there's some science and some research that, that backs you. So the old, you know, um, Yuri Vershoff-Anski, have you you've read any of his stuff? I haven't. So, he's the guy that popularized um, macrocycles, mesocycles, microcycles, week, weekly training, monthly training, yearly training to get Olympic athletes ready in the foreign, former Soviet Union. And um, everything was based on progressive overload. There is a finite limit of what you can do progressively, right? Because everybody has a different ceiling of what you can do, how heavy you can go. It's not some infinite thing that you can keep climbing. Um, that being said, 
I'm going to follow kind of and expose what Dante Trudell talks about and keeping um, a journal and keeping track of my weights, keeping track of these basic movements and see if I can heal my fucking shoulders doing this method. What's your argument against what I would be doing in the bro science way and kind of where you're coming from uh, as far as the training is concerned? Okay. So here's my issue with that um from it from a bro's perspective now you know when you and i jokingly discussed this topic my my stance was you're more science-based by nature and i'm more in the trenches by nature um because as i've said to you probably a thousand times i don't need some pencil neck with a lab coat to tell me that doing squats make my legs grow or <laughs> doing rear laterals for sets of 20, you're going to make my shoulders grow. I don't need someone to tell me that. So, right. um, you know, you and I, our goal for today's episode is to stay true to the side that we chose. <laughs> Just sure. Despite sure. the true answer probably being somewhere in the middle, not to one of the extremes. Right. So right. here's my problem with progressive overload. Um, what happens when you hit a workout and, it, and you aren't progressive? Um, most people view that session as a failure and I I don't feel that way. Um, if you go into the gym and let's say you've been doing 315 on incline barbell press for 10 and you, your goal is to get 12 before you move up to 335 or 320 or however you go, those increments of progression. If I go in there and get eight, but my chest gets pumped, like you've never felt it before. And you feel that movement was that failure. Was that a, was that success or failure? On your logbook, it says failure, right? Right. But as a bodybuilder, is the judge ever going to ask me how many times I bench press 315? No, they don't care how much you bench. Fuck no. So yeah. that that's my issue with it. Um, okay. Do I lo- Listen, if you're a beginner or inter- intermediate, you have to chase strength. You have to kind of be a slave to that. If your form is good, right. if your, um, you know, everything is set up right on the exercise. But at the same time, like what I've seen a lot with progressive overload is people begin to cheat the reps, right? Their negative speeds up. They don't go to quite full lockout. So you, if you aren't diligent with your negative counts, if you aren't diligent with counting three-fourths of a rep versus a whole rep versus a half a rep, how can you truly monitorize that progress? Um, and that can be some gray area there. Um, yeah. Listen, you know, as I think anything in this world is we need to get a pump and there is some science behind a pump, but there's not as much science behind that as there is with progressive overload. So I can tell you that coming in the gym, lifting heavy weights, it's real. whatever feels heavy that day is to me kind of irrelevant. Um, right. But the people in the progressive overload side of the spectrum are going to say, no, well, 225 should always feel like 225. But I think, as you and I know as experienced bodybuilders, some days you go in there and the weights are light, and some days you go in there and the weights are heavy. That could stem from stress. That could stem from how much you slept last night. It could stem if you were sick, how many meals you had in, how much water you got in. Did you yeah. take your intra-workout supplementation? Now, there's so many variables, in my opinion, that have to be constant for progressive overload to truly be effective. And that, that's my opinion. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, okay, yeah, I, 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 I can buy some of that, and, and I think there needs to be a happy medium. I think um, 
there's a way to marry a couple of the things where you progress and you keep track of it and you get stronger because let's face it, strength gains precede size. So typically you're going to get stronger before the muscle fiber gets bigger, correct? I would say so. To a certain, to a certain extent, right? At right. the beginning. So you've got your, you've got your neuromuscular adaptations where your body learns how to fire the weight and actually lift and, and recruit more muscle fibers and you get stronger. Then you blast it out, pumping it, using a lot of different techniques. And if, if you look at Dorian Yates, for example, uh, who is a prime example of progressive overload and he studied through Mike Menser and Arthur Jones and the whole lineage of, of, of where that came from, he would do a set and then he would do some high intensity, so partial reps or forced reps, he would have a partner then, you know, do some extra pump stuff at the end when he went to failure. Um, I think what you do instead of going so damn heavy is instead of doing like maybe one max out set or something like that, you take it a little bit lighter and maybe you do a couple sets with a couple techniques where you do drops, you get that pump, but you progressed in some kind of a manner where you went a little bit heavier than you did the day before. And, and you know, if you look at, if you look at Ronnie Coleman, strong as fuck. Uh, went heavy on squats, heavy on deadlifts. Chris Chris Cormier. Um, you take a lot of the guys, uh, Branch Warren, um, Johnny Jackson. All these huge guys, um, they went heavy as fuck, and they and they used progressive overload, and then did intensity techniques and trained high reps behind it. But there was some element of going heavier as they got to the peak. They were really freaking strong. They weren't doing girl fucking weights. They weren't repping out 225. You know, they, they were going heavy. And these are some of the biggest guys, you know, ever in the game. So, so I hear that. But just because they went heavy for what we would consider heavy doesn't mean they were doing progressive overload. Do you see what yeah. I'm saying? They weren't. Yeah. Ronnie wasn't going there and beating 800 for doubles. On deadlifts, he was just strong as hell. So when he would do he rows, was as hell, but there was a point where he was probably doing four hundred, then five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred, and did eight hundred pound squat. That was his finite limit, you know. And so, but he was training. When he would train reps, he would train maybe four hundred, you know, on squats for because I think he trained and he says most of the time I trained in the in the twelve to fifteen range rep wise. But then he would progressively overload and go stronger, do a heavy fucking double, get stronger, so then his reps were higher with weight. So, so I think from based on what I've seen with his videos, I think he was volume, man. You can't go volume and progressive overload. That's two different you can't do that. So okay, so I and I, I agree with you a little bit. I think there has to be a happy medium. I think in some manner you have to keep track and get stronger um before you get bigger and i think most i mean even guys that were high pump guys like arnold schwarzenegger and jay cutler that were huge and did high volume they they um i mean arnold was squatting three to 405 
Uh, Jay Cutler was, you know, probably doing four to five plates on Smith machine squats. So, the, I mean, they weren't using low weights, but, you know, these are also genetic freaks, too. So, so um, this is what I said to you. Like, so to me, the only Mr. Olympia that trained progressive overload was Dorian. And that's one dude right. out of 14 Mr. Olympias. So right. was he one of the bigger ones? Yes. Was he the biggest? I don't think so. I think size for like pound for pound, I would argue that Ronnie was bigger than him. I would argue that Jay's bigger than him if you put him side by side. You know, and I think that's where a lot of people get confused with progressive overload versus volume. I, I think Ronnie, I think Branch, I think Johnny Jackson, those are some of the three strongest dudes in bodybuilding, but they all train volume. Like they trained, and if you look at Ronnie, he trained every body part twice a week. So he wasn't doing progressive lo- overload six days a week. Um, no, no. So to me, like that's where that argument comes back to progressive overload. You're chasing strength, and you're hoping that size is a side effect byproduct. of the strength. The byproduct of yeah, yeah, and very similar to a volume guy, you're gonna hope the pump, the growth is a is a side effect of that. So. Yeah. You know, I think that's where people get confused is I, I don't think volume, a lot of people hear volume and they think, oh, I'm using pink dumbbells or I'm using sub-maximal load. If volume to me means how many total sets, how many total reps you're doing in a given workout. Ver- right. Where, as say, if you're looking at Dorian or say Dante for a dog crap style training, they're going to have maybe five to 10 work sets max per day. Right. Where if you look at Ronnie's, if you take the unbelievable, if you take his back workout, right? He's going to hit five sets of deadlifts. He's going to do five sets of T-bar rows. He's going to do five sets of barbell rows. He's going to yeah. do some seated cable rows and then get into biceps. Like, that's it, it's all semantics when you look right. at it. Um, right. Because some people would consider the sets he did with 600 as a work set. Other people would say, I don't know, his true work set wasn't until the eight, he pulled 800. If you're using that back workout for unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so, to me, like... it. It's so confusing and the lines are blurred because what works for you may not work for me. What may work for you in your 20s may not work for you when you're in your 40s. If you look at for like if you look at the numbers that I lifted when I was 25, they're yeah. higher than they are when I'm 35, but I'm 45 pounds heavier. Right. How does that make sense? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I was straight yeah. bar curling 135, 145, 155 as my work sets. I would never dream of doing that now but my arms are probably one and a half to two inches larger. Well, you're, you're, you're putting on lean tissue and you're maturing over. I think it's, I think it's time under tension and you've got a lot more time under tension now than you did 10 years ago because you've got that many more workouts, that many more meals. So would that mean that my volume philosophy is correct? Cause I'm getting accruing volume. I, I that, that's a good <laughs> anecdotal. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good anecdotal explanation and right. and study behind it. Um, you definitely have me there. So, getting on to the next subject, debunking facts from fiction in this bro science conversation. I want to bring up hormone replacement therapy, protocols for men and for women, and this. If you look at the bodybuilding boards, if you look at the bro science thing these days. I get fucking buddies asking me all the time and I'm in my forties and all my buddies are in their forties and they're like, Hey man, what do you think about trend trend balloon? And should I do it? I'm going to get some, I want to throw it in, into my HRT and you know, all my buddies are on HRT. So they're on. 
on 200 milligrams, 100 milligrams of test a week. Um, some of them are on HCG and, you know, some oral and different things. Some of them are doing the antibiotics. But they're asking me for my advice. And my advice to them is, why the fuck would you put a high androgen with another? And people don't realize that Trendalone, um, whether it's whether it's Trend and Anthe, uh, Trend Acetate, Trend Hex, and Trend Hex is the old parabolin, um, this is has a higher androgen count than testosterone. And when I hear my buddies in their 40s going, why can't I, I hear everybody's doing it. Why can't I just throw this into my testosterone? And I think, and then I hear about fucking women doing trend and people, you know, in, in extreme cases. And when a scientific approach to hormone replacement therapy is taking your levels that are naturally declining. So pre or post menopausal women, um, and we're going to get into some, some scientific, medical uses for some of these different compounds, but, um, you, you, you evaluate where everything's at through a medical doctor and you shore up any deficiencies that you have to get to youthful levels, uh, whether that's DHEA, whether that's total testosterone, free testosterone, where your estradiol levels are, or for women, estrogen and progesterone, uh, pregnenolone, um, IGF one if you if if you make a case for doing growth hormone or somorlin, uh, and then your luteinizing hormone, uh, follicle stimulating hormone for if you're going to do HCG. So you take these different levels of all these different things. You work with a doctor, and you take small amounts of these different things to get into your best shape possible in the safest manner. Is where I'm coming from in my argument from a scientific perspective. Now, from a bro science perspective, what are women do? What are women doing out there these days? Is it safe for them? Do you recommend it? Why do you recommend it? So, as a disclaimer for any drug topic we already talked about in previous episodes, let me just yeah. say these are what I see, <laughs> not right. necessarily what I recommend. Um, right. And listen, you have to go. It's got to be a personal decision for you, right? I'm, I've never once said, take this. It's, okay, well, if we want to look this like, is this is what we're going to suggest. If right. you don't feel comfortable with it, don't do it. Um, so for women, um, let's start here. It's it, it's not for bikini, first of all. <laughs> um, <laughs> let, let's start there. Um, if your figure, if your uh, physique, uh, if you're a women's bodybuilding, in like what you have to focus on is what, what do we need? Um, we yeah. just want to think about it being the polish to the sports car, right? A lot of people view it as the engine where I view the engine as training, where I view the cardio as the wheels and the interior as the um, nutrition. A lot of people view that the other way around. So to me, the drugs are just a polish, right? I can get in great shape naturally, but I can look a lot freakier with gear. End of story. Right. Um, right. So for women, um, I always I, I joked you earlier when we chatted about this. There's a magical combo uh, pre-contest, in my opinion, of one to two units of growth, and that's pharma grade. That's not generic. Um, you know, some Anavar and some Novadex, and then couple that with Clin and T3 if you need it. 
And that is going to be a magical combo for bringing a girl looking feminine, but having full round separated muscle and being very aggressively hard depending upon that person. Right. So my question is if, and rant about that is if it, if it boils down 80% to 85% of training and nutrition and you go see a doctor and they put you on very, very minute amounts of testosterone, like three to four milligrams a week, progesterone, pregnenolone, um, bioidentical estrogen, and get everything in the optimal levels safely, why compromise endothelial function, compromise red blood cells, and do all these things that are vasoconstricting, like clenbuterol, and in addition to taking Anavar, which has a reputation in, in research studies to actually be harmful for endothelial function. What I mean by endothelial function is, is your arteries and um, blood flow. Um, why take that chance when down the road uh, this could do more harm than what it's doing good when really if you diet and train your ass off and do these other things through a naturopath or a doctor and don't do it the bro science way, um, you might get pretty similar results. I'd like to see some people that try it. And I anecdotally don't know because most of these protocols are for older women, but I would bet if you took somebody and they nailed their nutrition and they nailed their training and they had decent genetics and they did this the right way, and didn't do because I know a lot of coaches out there that blindly tell girls to tell to do clean and blindly tell them to do T3 their whole fucking contest prep and then their metabolism's fucking crash they're on starvation diets and these girls are getting fucked up so the bros say like you need a credible coach first off um, if 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 anybody if you go out there and they tell you to go on this stuff at the beginning of your prep all the way through 16 to 20 weeks, run, uh, run from them and seek out somebody that knows what they're doing to help you out with their prep. Um, so medically speaking, the things that oxandrolone, uh, which is, you know, the trademark, uh, Anavar, oxandrolone is the drug are made for are Turner syndrome and burn victims and Turner syndrome is actually women that are too short. Um, so, and, or have a, a predisposition to fractures and some bone and shorter in statue. They're actually given Anavar. Um, and, uh, the problem is they've done a lot of, you know, uh, they've done a lot of research and, you know, every time you take orals, it really can mess with your lipids and the cardioprotective HDL, high density lipoprotein that protects your arteries. It goes into the tank. So let's not kid ourselves in, in thinking that when, when, if women get suggested of taking this, we're, we're basically telling them to fuck their blood lipids. And then the thing about guys, and I think about, I, I actually like about what is suggested for guys more is they're just told to do orals the last six to eight weeks before a show to come in really hard. Whereas, and then they're told to do injects the rest of the year. Why aren't women told to do Primabolin 
an injects part of the year and then just do anavar at the end if if it's a higher anabolic and and not a big androgenic like testosterone or some of the other things and, and why is it so widely accepted that anavar should be used uh for entire preps so the answer for anavar is easy it's the most easily non-side effect it's the weakest so okay. you can get this a similar sensation as injecting testosterone as you could with anavar but it's much weaker so it's not as right. aggressive so the probability of side effects is less um so let me answer a couple of questions you had during that whole thing. Okay. So you said, why would we, why would we do that? And I'm going to give you the ultimate bro response is it's because it works. <laughs> okay. That's why okay. we do okay. it. Um, okay. Secondly, you said you want to see what it looks like of someone versus natural levels versus supernatural levels. So I would say yeah. you take a muscle mania pro figure girl and you put her beside the girl who wins. Uh, nationals and it's not the same look <laughs> it's just right. not um if you go to the nationals you go to north americans if you go to um usa's if you look at those girls who are in the top 10 probably that round look full look you see in their shoulders that's yep. that's testosterone derivatives um right. even if you look at men bodybuilders for the most part and i'm not talking about genetically gifted black guys that have capped shoulders like you see LeBron James have in NBA. If you right. look at most natural males at a natural level, they don't have that capped freaky fullness to the shoulder. They just don't. Right. You go to the nationals or USA's or shit, even high-level uh, high local shows, every heavyweight, every middleweight, every, every super has big-ass round shoulders. Why right. is that? Because that's what testosterone looks like. Yeah. <laughs> it just is. So... If you want to compete at that level, point is there's certain things that men and women are doing to be able to compete at that level, uh, genetics aside. Yeah. Listen, there's yeah. a handful of people who can do it, but that's very, very, very rare. Um, and then one of the other things you asked me is, you know, why, why is it accepted to run orals year round for females? For me, it's not. For my clients, it's not. We call on that shit at the very end when we need it, just as we would with the guys. I treat that no different. The, the, the supplements just simply change or the product or whatever you want to call that changes. Um, very similar with a majority of my guys. They run a very basic all season growth plan. It's because there's a reason I don't run master on and trend with most guys in the all season. We save that shit for when we need it at the end to be cosmetic. If you blast it year round, your body's not sensitive to it. So, you know, if you're running 20 IUs of growth in the offseason, what are you going to use pre-contest? 30? Fuck off. No one can afford that if it's legit zero. Um, you're just not. <laughs> so, you know, the answer to me to all of this is, you know, something that you and I chatted about earlier in the week. All of steroids came from, in my opinion, Dan Duchesne. Um, every bit of knowledge we have in the bodybuilding community, we can thank him for and he read right. UCLA medical journals to figure out, hey, we should try this for this reason. We should try X for this reason. And then next yeah. thing you know, the steroid Bible was born, so to speak. <laughs> right. um, and it was all based upon him in California doing research on his own and trying it on subjects. Like, that's the difference between medical 
and bro, in my opinion, with when you speak of the drug topic, is the drugs we use aren't designed for the purposes they were designed for. Right. They just weren't. So we take those and do that solely based upon people before us, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's true. Th- th- that's that that's that's my case for it. Is if it worked for Arnold, if it worked for Yates, if it worked for Haney, if it worked for Coleman, if it worked for Cutler, why in the fuck won't it work for me? It may not work as drastically for me, but it's going right. to. So, yeah. you know, if you go talk to any doctor, they don't understand how we use drugs. Right? For the most part. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. make sense to them. They say what you said. Hold on. Use Clin to burn fat. Use T3 to shed that last bit of fat. Use Trend to make your muscles pound, round and hard and your things pop. That makes no sense to them. <laughs> right. But if we know if we take 75 megs of Trend a day the last four weeks, it makes you look freaky as fuck. That's because right. it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, I still, you know, I feel obligated to my buddies when they just want to get in shape for Memorial Day and when they want to get in shape for summer and they're hitting me up and they're saying, hey, man, I'm thinking about doing some trend. What do you think? Or what should I put together with this? And I'm like, dude, you're 45 years old. What the fuck? I mean, that you shouldn't even be thinking about that. Like, you need to watch your fucking... You want to get in shape for Memorial Day, like, cut your carbs, start doing cardio, train your ass off, and, and, and monitor what you eat. Yeah, and so listen... Don't look at a magical fucking drug to, to solve this problem. I don't need a doctor to tell me not to run trend to look good at the beach. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. there's too many fucking health risks. I'm not an idiot. Like, right. it, I'm not going to take clean and... Te- go ahead. You know, we're, we're not. That's the point. Yeah. But... but people listening to this and the people on the boards and my buddies see that trend is this big popular drug and it's getting everybody in social media hard as fuck. And you know, the images of people year round in shape that see, that's the problem with this shit is, is social media is part and parcel of the problem. And the reason why my buddies are even asking me about this shit at 45 years old is they're looking at people going, okay, we hear that they're doing this and we want to get in that kind of shape. And I'm like, listen, most bodybuilders, if if you want to get bigger and then you want to get in shape for a show, you you don't run this shit year round. If you do, you do like like you were saying, you run it at the end to get really hard and freaky. But I got news for you. You do this stuff. This is This is why people have run into heart problems and and, and, you know, all kinds of liver issues, kidney issues, is because they're cranking this shit and um, they're not paying attention to, you know, what's going on in their body or they just want to ignore what, they, what they're doing to it and blindly take this stuff. And that's where I think both of us as coaches have a problem with society is this is, this is a big issue and you need to do this shit smart and you need to first – figure out what you're doing with somebody who's credible, who's taking people through this process and not listen to these boards. So that, that's my, that's my big point. So dietitians, uh, certified nutritionists, um, people in the science community think there's a certain macronutrient structure, um, and if you eat a broad array 
of natural foods. What I mean by that natural foods is foods in the raw state, not a lot of highly processed crap. So 10 to 10 to 35% max, 35% protein, 20 to 35% fat, and then the rest uh, carbohydrates is you can build plenty of muscle that way. You can you can you can win gold medals eating this way, you know, as athletes um, or high-level performing athletes in any sport, um, that you don't need these fucking fad diets. And again, I keep getting hit up by people I keep at my gym, my buddies. I want to do intermittent fasting. I want to do keto. I need to lose 20 pounds. What do you think about keto? What do you think about intermittent fasting? What do you think about low-carb? And, you know... Part of me goes, okay, well, here's the here's the formula where you do high protein, low carb, um, but is that sustainable for somebody year round rather than just eating balanced and creating a little bit of a deficit? Because what a diet what a dietitian would tell you is the science says total in total out, you don't need to crank forty to forty five percent of your calories in protein in order to lose weight. So. Um, what is the bro science and how do you argue against this and or do you support going against this scientific standpoint of nutrition? I hate it. And let me tell you why. And here's what I here's what I want to do. I want I want to conduct this study with some I need two individuals, right? I need I want to put them on the exact same macronutrient profile, but they have they roughly have if it was in a perfect world it'd be twins, right? Roughly okay. the same body fat, same activity level. And I want to take that macro approach. I want to feed them one. The one I want to feed is all bro foods, right? Eggs and oatmeal, chicken and rice, steak and potato. The other one, I want to literally feed soy protein, bacon greases their fat, and table sugar for their carbs. They're going to eat the exact same amount of calories, the exact same amount of macros for 12 weeks. And I want to look and see what their body does. Right. That's my argument, right? And, and that honestly is how I always talk to people about if it fits your macros. Like if that right. truly works scientifically, dieting, right? say what? That's being flexible. Yeah, 100%. Flexible. You're going to drink bacon grease for your fat. You're going to eat soy protein for your protein. And you're going to eat table sugar for or cane sugar or whatever. You can do honey. I don't give a fuck. Um, right. That I want to put them on that for 12 weeks. And I want to see who looks better at the end and who performs better. Because yeah. if science is correct and they say if you only inject if you only eat let's say 500 calories below maintenance then you should lose body fat and you should look better and your body should recomposition it's not going to work i don't think at least maybe i'm wrong maybe maybe i could be way off but i yeah i think it would make you really sick and you wouldn't be healthy at all right I, i think i think what a lot of dietitians would say though the caveat with with the calories and the macro breakdown of what is generally, you know, suggested and prescribed among these uh, people in the scientific community is that it has to be, you know, you need to get your trace minerals and your antioxidants through eating fresh vegetables, organic if you can, uh, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, um, lean proteins. Uh, fats that are that are minimally processed um, and high in EF, EFAs and uh, DHAs, and um, so you know it can't be vegetable proteins and uh, 
and, 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 and things of that nature and the fat can't be bacon fat and just cheese and lots of high saturated fat. Although there's one exception the saturated fat in coconut oil has been shown to actually help help out heart health and, uh, uh, our endothelial functioning is actually shown to help help that even though it's saturated fatty acid. Um, but I, I think their standpoint is you have to eat nutritiously with this, but you don't, I don't know if I agree with 10 to 20% protein. I, if you go down to 15 or 10 or, uh, and then eat a shit ton of carbs and a higher amount of fat, you may, it may be okay for an endurance runner that doesn't need a lot of muscle, but for athletes that need to throw baseballs and run fast and, um, hit hard and jump through the roof, I think you do need a different breakdown. All right, let me let me take a different stance then, because what I gave as the example doesn't match what you're saying, and I want to be able to defend what you're saying. Or, sorry, yeah. I need to be able to oppose what you're saying. So, right. the biggest way to maintain and grow lean muscle tissue is to eat animal flesh. End, end of story. <laughs> That's the biggest difference right. between bodybuilders or bro people versus scientists, scientific community, right? It's the amount yeah. of protein. And how much yeah. percentage the protein takes up of a diet. I've yet to see people gain muscle off of eating carbs. Is carbs a catalyst or can be a shuttle of the protein? Yes. But a, a, a meal plan based off of high carbohydrate, moderate protein, or moderate fat, low protein, isn't going to do that. Right. If you look at any giant individual, whether it be a football player, a sumo wrestler, or a bodybuilder, they all eat tons of meat. Eggs, protein shakes, all that kind of stuff. So it all depends upon what you're eating for in yeah. that regard. If it's for performance, I would say, yes, you need carbs, but you also need a lot of protein. And then how much fat depends upon your body type. And that's something that I feel like a lot of the medical community doesn't take into consideration, in my opinion at least, is that a, people need varying levels of nutrients given their activity level, given their body type, given their genetics. Um, I mean, as you know, with clients, some people can pound carbs and get leaner and some people need yeah. little to none. And the so, room for variance is there's too much gray area of the extreme of, and that may change as you age. That may be change over the course of a diet as your insulin sensitivity gets better and improves through the course of a lower carb, lower calorie diet, you can reintroduce carbs and be at a leaner state. Okay. So give me this yes. and give the listeners this. What is your ideal macro breakdown for men and for women to create a deficit to get into good shape not not i don't want the last six weeks before a show okay. because it, you severely have to restrict but to turn the tables of getting leaner from okay. where they're at right now okay men and women go so for for are you talking about normal like normal size individuals yeah just a let, 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 yeah, and i don't need an exact caloric breakdown I, I want percentages of protein carbs and fat for men and for women to create a little bit of a deficit okay. um it, it could be a 100 150 a 200 pound man or woman okay let's, uh, let's okay i'll do that let's do 130 pound female and a 200 pound male easy okay um i want to put all your carbohydrates around your workout time before and after i want protein at every meal if it's a man it's going to be roughly 50 grams at every single meal as far as okay. carbs, I want to thank probably 75 before, 75 after. And then all your meals outside of that, I want you to have roughly 10 grams of fat as a man. 
So if you think about that, six meals, 300 grams of protein, you're gonna have 150 grams of carbs, and then the other four of your meals are gonna have 10 grams of protein, so or of fat, so you're roughly 40 grams of fat. Does that make sense? Okay. So yeah. 300, 150, 40, and you're gonna get in good shape. If you you should be able to see your abs if you exercise pretty damn hard on that. For a female, okay. yep. 25 to 30 grams of protein per meal, all six meals. I want to have roughly 30 grams of carbs before, 30 grams of carbs after, and then fat yeah. anywhere between probably seven to eight grams in your four remaining meals after that. Okay. If I'm going super simple, and then vegetables, uh, I would have four servings of vegetables with those protein and fat meals. Okay. Okay. That's All what right. I would do. Personally. Yeah. yeah. And now, that's very different than medical community would say though, right? don't need 50 grams of protein uh six times a day for men right uh they would say you probably need 15 to 20 right uh and they would see and they would say that predominantly most of your uh calories need to come from carbohydrates is, is it's the preferred fuel source of the body correct um and but they they do say moderate you know, moderate fat, you, you need to keep your fat high. That's one thing that they kind of changed where, and, and, and I, I like the 35% protein, the higher end of it, I don't disagree with. Um, I, I think if someone were to do 20, 25% fats, 35% protein, the rest carbohydrates, it probably, probably wouldn't be too far off from that diet. What you just said, not too far. Right. It'd be a little different. But I think on the upper end of protein, um, it, it would work. What, what, what people want is ease of use and simplicity with, with, with diets. And um, a lot of people, you have to – I have a hard time getting across that peri-workout nutrition, lots of carbs before and after your workout because I get a lot of people coming into my gym – and they work out at 6.30, and getting them to go home and wrap their mind around, especially females, wrap their mind around doing most of their carbohydrates later at night. But given that, they eat like crap most of the day anyway. So right? you want to you know, you know how I sell that to clients? How do you sell it? Carbs before bed make you sleep like a baby. Huh? It works. And once you tell them that, they're like, holy shit, you're right. Where if you go home and you eat protein and fat, protein and vegetables, you're going to be fucking ravenous. Think about that when I think about, so you work out earlier in the day or middle of the day, right? Yeah. Think about when we get to the end of a show prep and I'm having you just eating protein and vegetables or just a little bit of fat with your protein and vegetables at night. It's awful, right? It's awful, but you know what I tell people in my gym just to interject? Yes. Is if you're not a little bit hungry every day and if you don't go to bed hungry, you're probably not creating a deficit. Bottom line is if you fucking are fully satisfied, but when you go to bed, you've probably eaten too many calories that day. The, the problem with telling people to backload their day with carbohydrates is they don't, they don't just front load their day with just lean proteins and, and veggies is the problem. Right. So most people get out and roll out of bed and they'll eat some kind of fucking carb. Right. And or they'll eat a bunch of carbs and fat. Um, 
you know, for lunch. And then you tell them to, you know, to eat their carbs before and after the workout. The problem is that would involve them eating a meal right when they get out of work. Um, and they don't like doing that. And then eating them after. It, it's just logistically, unless you get a person to buy into the six meals a day and just listen to what the fuck we're talking about, it's it's hard. It's, it's a hard sell. So what you have to do is you have to convince them that their old ways of thinking is wrong. Okay. So what I always tell adults is that you need to stop eating like a child. (laughs) Stop it. Like, so think about the normal American diet for breakfast. It's coffee and a donut, coffee and a bagel, coffee and a muffin, right? Yeah. Or you go rush to work and you have a morning meeting and it's like a plethora of donuts and bear claws and just bullshit carbohydrates from Panera bread, right? That's what everyone has at meetings. And then you go to lunch and everyone goes out to lunch and people get what burgers and fries, a sandwich and chips, Subway, Firehouse. And then they come home at night and they, and what do they say? I eat whatever my wife makes or I eat whatever my kids do. <laughs> right? You're eating like a child. Stop it. Right. T- take control of your fucking life. Um, yeah. Like that's I always challenge people on that. And I'm like, listen, do you want results or do you want what you always had? And it goes back to that argument. Right. And right. I always try to convey to people like, cause that's another, that's another stereotype that we have to, you know, dispute regularly. And even with competitors out that work out later at night is they'll, they'll look at their meal plan. And they're like, Oh man, God, you have me eating 300 grams of carbs after 4 PM. Am I going to get fat? And I'm like, no, not if you train your balls off. Like, yeah. and then they realize like, okay, not a big deal. And a lot of my clients will say, man, I've never had a meal right before I went to bed. And a lot of times I eat my last meal in bed. And they're like, okay, well, if this kid can get in shape and do it, like our bed used to be filled with crumbs of fucking Ezekiel bread because before bed, I like to eat whole eggs, egg whites, and Ezekiel bread. I don't know why. I guess my question is, why do you have to eat it actually in the bed? Because, why? I don't know. It's comfortable and that's what I got used to doing. (laughs) So I always, I use that as an example to try to say, listen. I mean, because I, I, I'm, fuck, I'm literally giving you my answers, like, and I hate this shit, because I'm just supporting what you said, right, of it doesn't matter, like, as long as I'm getting my macronutrients in, I'm still going to get results, right, because that's what your argument was, right, and to me, I guess yeah. that's true, like, as long as I'm getting my nutrients in, as long as I'm in a deficit, does it matter, the timing of it, maybe not, right. um, I prefer to give carbs around the workout only because, it tends to give lead to better productive workouts and then it speeds recovery. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's tough, man. It's for, for most people out there, that's a, you're right. It takes them a long time to wrap their brain around that unless they start seeing results or they get so pissed off with their shitty results that they're like, okay, I'm ready to try what this person's telling me. Right. Um, because listen, we all know that starving works in the short term, right? Yeah. It just does. You wake up and you see your weights down, your pants are looser, your belt's coming in holes, and you're like, fuck, this is working. Okay, well, that's not sustainable long term. Very similar to going back to our first topic, right? You can't infinitely get stronger, or we'd have people bench pressing 2,000 pounds. Um, Eventually, that starving's going to catch up to you, and you're going to start losing muscle, and you're going to start feeling like shit, and your teeth and hair are going to start falling out, and your skin's going to get weird, and your nails are going to get brittle. Um, so that's why, you know, it's really hard. I'm sure when you present meal plans to people that people like, oh my God, that's a lot of food. Yeah. And 
it's not what they're used to seeing. But and they think, oh, it's this bodybuilder trying to feed me a bunch of calories. Like that's the number one thing I think I have to beat my head against the wall about for most clients that I work with who are what I would consider more general population. Listen, yeah. but most bodybuilders, you can't feed them too much. They're complaining when you're taking food away because they're like, oh my God, I'm going to lose all my muscle. But the general population people, they don't believe that they need as much food as they truly do. And which yeah. is why it leads them to feeling like shit. And they don't feel like working out. It's a vicious cycle. Right. So, yeah. Right. I don't know whether it just led us down a weird path there, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. Sometimes these topics do. <laughs> <laughs> now, intensity. So, I don't think I agree, or I don't think I d- disagree with high intensity in training. I think you need a certain amount of d- high intensity in training um and you i think having a workout partner is motivating having a person that's you're accountable to whether that be a coach or a workout partner that's like hey are you going to be here at at six o'clock you're going to be here at seven o'clock we got legs today we got back today uh i i think that's good in training um i i think a mile i think marathon workouts I think getting your cortisol too high as you get older and getting in too much of that catabolic thing, which also lends to the high volume thing can be somewhat detrimental because all we have to do is stimulate the muscle to grow. You don't have to beat the fuck out of the muscle fiber in order to stimulus for it to grow. You have to stimulate it. And what Lee Haney used to say is don't annihilate it. So Arnold and one of the things that Mike Menser had a problem with with Arnold was, guys, you don't need to work out four to five hours a day and destroy your body with 30 sets of volume to stimulate the muscle fibers. And they proved at that time that, you know, and Dorian proved, I mean, how long were Dorian's workouts? 45 minutes. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. How many total sets would he do? Six to eight. <laughs> was he bigger than Arnold? Yeah. Did he have better drugs than Arnold? Maybe. Maybe. He uh, was shorter. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's a few different ways to skin a cat. Yeah. And, and um, I don't, I think whatever works for you individually, I think you need to bring intensity to the table, though. Right. It, what, now, but does that, does that mean as you get older that you blindly, crank out hours and mindless sets and reps. And I think you're asking for a lot of tendonitis and joint issues. If, if there's not a cap on your intensity and a cap on your volume, especially in people 35 years and older. Um, so what would you, what would you say to that? I can say that I was a victim of that when I was younger because I, I wanted to lift all the weights not just some of them, <laughs> you know, I, when I got into a gym and I saw machines and all these dumbbells and barbells and I kind of had an unlimited schedule, like I just wanted to right. lift them all. And I had to really scale my workouts back. But at the same time as my, I feel like as I got older um, yeah. and have continued to mature, I'm able to get more out of less. And yeah. that's because the, my muscle connection is better. That's because I can go heavier to some extent on certain exercises, but I think it really stems from the ability to fire and control muscle. Um, yeah. 
where when I was younger, you know, after a while, your body just kind of goes dead and you're just doing shit, you know? Um, you know, do I agree with what you said a hundred percent? Um, where I think I fall in line or against science is this new like HRV system where they wake up and you have you test your resting heart rate. And if it's elevated, then you don't train that day. Right. And, you know, listen, if you wake up and you feel like shit because you're sick or your joints hurt, maybe it is time to take a day off. But I think you and I have both had days where we've been less motivated. And once we got in there and got a couple of working sets done and got a couple of exercises done and you feel great, you're like, man, I really needed that. I'm glad I came in today. So yeah. it's a fine line to skate on when to stay home and when to not. And to me, that kind yeah. of transfers. I always get the question of, hey, do you work out when you're sick? What do I do when I'm sick? And I have an easy rule. And it's I always tell everyone this, as I've told you this. If you have a fever, if you're throwing up, or you can't control what's coming out of your ass, you don't need to work out. <laughs> yeah. um, if you can't get your water and meals down, you don't work out. It's as easy yeah. as that. If you have a cough and your throat's sore, as long as you can still eat and drink, I have no issue with you training. Yeah. Um, but you really need to double down on your rest when you do feel run down and beat up. So that that's a that's a hard thing to say, like, because 20 sets for you may be all right and 30 sets might be all right for me, but 50 isn't good for either of us. Um yeah. that's a that's a tough that's a tough question because what I would honestly say, and this is probably the most ultimate bro answer, is you need to be instinctual. Yeah. How do you gain that instinct, though, Greg? You gain it because you've crossed that line, <laughs> right? The only you, way... You, yeah, you learn. Right. The only way you and I know where our line is is because we've crossed it. And yeah. not just once, not twice, multiple fucking times. Because... Several. Yeah, because you'll say, several man... Dozens, several dozens. Right, because you'll say to me, fuck, I went too hard on that shoulder today. And I'll say... Yeah, you knew it going in. You're like, yeah, but I felt great when I was doing it. But in hindsight, right. you're like, that was too much. And the only reason right. you know that is because you've been there, right? <laughs> yeah. So I tried, you know, I've tried some of Coach Krista's volume days and my joints, my back, my hips, and my shoulders couldn't take it. Um, everybody's going to be a little bit different. I'm yeah. over 10 years older than he is in his mid-30s. Uh, so it's, it's a thing where everybody's going to be a little bit different. Uh, I don't think there's any magical amount of training time that you can say is optimal for everybody across the board. I don't know if men or women are much different, although I do see women doing lots of fucking volume. Women do a shitload more. I agree. They do a shitload of volume and seem to get good results and recover. Yeah. So... As long as their body can handle it, that's that's fucking fantastic. So here, here's and I see lots of guys falling apart and having pec tears and different things. Maybe they're trying to go too heavy. Maybe they're doing too much on it. Maybe it's just their age. Um, maybe so it's a variety of reasons. Here's the here's here's the reason we have no answers, right? Because what if Dorian would have done twelve sets? What if Ronnie would have done six sets? What if Ronnie would have went light and not tore his fucking back out of place? Right. Because it's always so many what ifs, right? What if, would right. you think Dorian may have been a little bit more rounder and fuller if he did more volume, or do you think it'd yeah. been a detriment? If you think Ronnie didn't go as heavy as he did, do you think he wouldn't have hurt himself? Do you think if yeah. Branch would have slowed the bar down and not went quite as ballistic, he would have won more Arnold Classics or beat Jay in that Olympia where he finished second? Like, right. 
that's that's like what if i pulled my volume back and didn't do as high like those are all these questions that everyone has because they want to use dorian as an example but what if he would have not trained that way would he still or he would have had the same exact result was it was he so, so genetically gifted that no matter what he did worked the same with ronnie the same with jay the same with flex wheeler like yeah that that's that's the that's the true question because we don't know the answer because we don't know what unless you said was it the drugs was it genetics was it was it his food was it that he wrote everything down in a journal like that's what makes in my opinion this bodyboarding world fun is everything's a puzzle and what works for two people may not work or may work for everyone so it's kind of cool guys for chris edmund uh i'm greg jones thanks a lot for listening to another episode of culture radio